Fusion, the international science radio show. We have a bouncer and the doors of perception. <laughs> the good, the bad, the ugly. It gets pretty exciting. The myths, the truths. Toxicology. Astro seismology. Magnetism. The dark side. Genetically engineered potatoes. Planetoid. Planetoid. I love that word. <laughs> <laughs> Hello and welcome to Diffusion. Relax while we infuse weird and wonderful science into your brain. I'm Bonnie Yu, and this edition will feature beady-eyed artificial intelligence, sex science history, and the genetics of chocolate. But first up, here's the news with Lachlan Watmore. We've got some great news for chocolate lovers. The genome of the cocoa bean has been mapped. Confectionery giants Mars and Hershey have, in a chocolate version of the space age, raced each other to see who could map the genome first. About two years ago, Mars teamed up with the US Department of Agriculture, various academics, IBM and $10 million. Hershey, in the meantime, had formed an alliance with the University of Pennsylvania and various French research labs. The two teams then set about sequencing the 420 million nucleotides of the cocoa tree, known to its friends as Theobroma cacao, which means, unsurprisingly, food of the gods. 70% of the world's cocoa is grown in West Africa by small-scale farmers, and a better understanding of the tree's biology would open the door to many agricultural improvements. Six and a half million farmers worldwide, many at a subsistence level, depend on cocoa, which can be difficult to grow due to its susceptibility to disease and the need for reliable weather patterns. Both sides have claimed victory in the race, but it would appear Mars has just pipped Hershey, especially in the PR stakes. Last Tuesday, the 15th of September, they issued a press release claiming about 90% mapping of the raw genome and the identification of nearly 35,000 genes. To the credit of both companies, neither has attempted to patent any of their findings, instead releasing their data for, if you'll pardon the pun, public consumption. The Mars team got its 10 millions worth by using second-generation gene mapping technology made by Illumina, a biotech company in San Diego. The winner is, of course, chocolate and its disciples, apostles, devotees, lovers, and the people who like to use it as a marital aid, such as giving the missus a nice box of red tulip. And now there's nothing that goes together quite as well as science and beer, but imagine adding sex to that mix. That's exactly what Marquess and Darren Osborne did in this week's edition of the Beer Drinking Scientists. Well, welcome to the Beer Drinking Scientists for the first time in quite a while again. Um, I'm your, uh, one of your hosts for this episode, Darren Osborne. I'm joined here by... Mark West. I have to admit uh, that it's good to see you again, Darren. It's good oh, to be here. Well, yes, likewise. And I mean, we, we, we see each other every now and again. We do. It's just, it's just a matter of us getting together and, and, and bringing a microphone and we having a chat. We don't always bring a microphone. This is the problem, isn't it? We bring yeah. the beer, but we don't bring the microphone. It's a big problem. Anyway, we're going to be talking about a topic that is near and dear to most people's hearts. This is true. We're going to be talking about the topic of sex. I have to admit, I'm not much of a geneticist myself, but uh, I like to think I have a working uh, knowledge, a hands-on sort of knowledge. What about you, Darren? I don't know about hands-on, but I am <laughs> going to preface this uh, episode by saying that anything we say about ourselves is, is, is truly in the hypothetical range. It's got nothing to do with our actual lives. So if our partners are listening to, uh, to this podcast, don't believe anything we say. 
it's uh, yeah, far more interesting that way anyway. So. <laughs> All right, well, we're going to kick off by, um, by having a look at uh, the, the actual topic of, of sex itself and some of the statistics and some of the, the things that come out of, of sex and some of the sex surveys that have been done. And it's interesting to know that even though uh, sex has been something that maybe the Greeks, you know, uh, like uh, Hippocrates might have, have, have thought about as he pondered the world and all the things around him, it, it wasn't until uh, the, the 1950s when Alfred Kingsley first did the, the, the first definitive bit of scientific research into sex. Um, because before that, I mean, particularly in the Victorian era of the 1900s, it just wasn't talked about. I should say, the 1800s, it just wasn't talked about. We didn't talk about it at all. And even up until uh, World War II, it was something that was kept away. But it was um, Dr. Alfred uh, Kingsley who, who pioneered these, these surveys that he did in the late 1940s and the early 1950s. And he, he uh, interviewed a number of, quite a number of, of, of men and women in, in the US um, and asked them a range of different questions about about uh, sex and masturbation and intercourse and, and their marital history and so forth and came, came through with some, some interesting statistics. That was, that was pretty much the definitive survey of the, the 1900s, wasn't it? The yeah, McKinsey survey. Yeah, I think it's something that most people always refer back to as sort of the dawn of, 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 of the, the, the research into sex. So, so let's have a look at some of the numbers that, that came out of that. Um, the first thing was that uh, a fifth of males had their first um, sexual uh, intercourse at the time of 16 years. So that was only 20% back then. Uh, married women uh, were having sex 2.2 times a week by the age of 30. Um, foreplay. Foreplay is always interesting. It's, it's always interesting, yeah. <laughs> One that a lot of men feel pressured yeah. into. No, no, it shouldn't be. Uh, foreplay lasted four to ten minutes for only a third of couples. Only a third of couples, I should point that out. And 40% of males preferred um, making love in the light, not in the oh, dark. Oh, as opposed to the dark in or the under the covers. Or... That's right. I'm always fascinated by these surveys, any scientific uh, uh, report but especially when it comes to something quite personal as sex, as these things are always self-reported, aren't they? They're not... Uh, there's, not a, there's not a man in a lab coat taking notes and timing the foreplay, are there? It, it's, it's always self-reported, which makes me wonder about, well, are they actually you know, increasing the time of foreplay, decreasing their age of first sex? Increasing the length of their... Yeah, mm. for instance. Yeah, yeah. yeah. It, it's well, interesting. Well, well, come to that. Come to some of those numbers in a sec. But it's certainly a good point because in science, we rely on objectivity. We rely on exact measurements and comparisons. And, and certainly when you're self-reporting, uh, that is, you're talking about your experiences that you've had in the past, um, yeah, there's that, that bias, that subjectivity that can come into it. One other stat I, I didn't, uh, forgot to mention there was that 47.5% that of men ejaculated within five minutes of sex beginning. But Kingsley actually mentions, um, or he speculates in there, that he thinks that around about three quarters of those men actually um, reached orgasm within two minutes of actual intercourse itself. Oh, right. So, so, the, so there's two minutes or so of foreplay beforehand. Is this what he's saying? That, that's what he's speculating. Now, the, the next phase in, in, in sexual research actually came from Masters and Johnson. Sounds like a brand of a... It does. Uh, yeah. <laughs> healthcare product. <laughs> yeah, it does. <laughs> um, but they, 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 they went one step further and they actually wanted to look at what happened to, to humans, to the human physiology 
in the act of sex. And, and they developed an, a number of different devices, uh, mainly sort of polygraph type things, so things that would measure respiration and heartbeat and that sort of stuff um, uh, while people were having sex um, or masturbating. And, and they actually had a report that they came out, I think it was in the late 60s, I might get corrected here, but that, that was sort of the next pioneering area into sex. Now, here in Australia, um, in, in uh, the early, early, uh, early last decade, in the noughties, as the we can call it, yep. yeah. Um, a number of universities, the uh, University of Sydney, La Trobe University of Victoria, and the University of New South Wales, they actually conducted the Australian Study of Health and Relationships, and they interviewed uh, 19,000 Australians between the ages of, of 16 and 59, and, and they came out with some numbers. So um, That's a good sample size. It, it is a very... Very good sample size, 19,000, yeah. So um, let's have a look at some of the numbers there. Um, they come up with uh, that the people reported that uh, they had, uh, on average, uh, sex 1.84 times a week. Now, that's interesting. So we compare that back to, uh, to Kingsley's report. They were saying 2.2 for females at the age of 30. So one, one would suggest that we we're actually having less sex than we were back in the 50s, if we were in America. Yeah, that's true. That's a surprising result, isn't it? Mm. It seems uh, lower than... You would expect, given, you know, times move along and the reputations of Australians, you know? Yeah, being, you know, sexed up and all that sort of thing, that's but right. maybe we're not. Maybe, maybe it's that element of being British. Yes, that's, maybe that's our British heritage, right, right. yeah. <laughs> um, but they also found that uh, 85% of the respondents said that they wish they had sex twice a week. Yes. Well, that's interesting, isn't it? <laughs> <laughs> um, uh, some other things that they uh, that they came out of that study was that um, they revealed that um, vaginal intercourse was by far the most common sexual practice, and that most people, ninety five percent of men and seventy nine percent of women, um, had an orgasm the last time they had sex. Now, I must say, seventy nine percent of women. When you read other literature, that, that's quite high. That seems a lot higher than. Uh, where, uh, you know, those billboards for the Australian Medical Institute, you know, uh, that say that you can spray something up your nose and you will perform better if you're a man. That, that's a lot higher than, uh, than they would lead you to, to think. I think that men want sex more than women. And, and what's led you to that conclusion? Oh, just the studies I've heard in the media reports. <laughs> no personal experience there? No, no, no scientific personal experience. Is there anything that you've read from science that has improved um, your sex life? Uh, yes, the thing is that it seems to be an important uh, component of living a healthy life and a balanced life. There was that uh, book that came out recently, I can't remember its name, I think it's The Origin of Sex, and it was about the... Um, Unnatural nature of monogamy. That was really sweet. The unnatural nature of monogamy? Yes. It believed that um, prior to an agrarian culture, um, monogamy wasn't actually something that was understood because we didn't understand the nature of husbandry. So that it was a relatively modern concept. So pairing up is like a, a cultural thing, not a... Uh, a recent cultural thing. A recent, a recent cultural, cultural thing. thing. Yeah, a recent wow. cultural thing. Okay. Prior to that, we didn't actually get how it worked. So it was like, form a cue. In either direction. Do you know what? In either direction. We're 
Pressure. They'd have died really early. Like, yes. Maybe to 100. It's a bit different to If I was going to die at 20, I was going out with a bat. There's a study There's a study out of China that suggests the more you earn, the more likely your female partner is to have an orgasm. Have you, uh, have you, have you felt a change throughout your student life and then into your working life as you've earned more money? Nah, flowers don't cost that much. I believe. It's only 25 bucks. Jesus. Not that big of a job for me. You don't go from spending 25 to 100, you stay with the 25 one. Cute personality. I think the cuteness is very underrated. Cuteness is one of the most attractive features in the entire world. All of that cuteness. Do, do you think that men and women actually subconsciously think about offspring, about the the, the kids that they might produce when they're meeting? All, um, I sure as hell don't. I won't lie to you. Personally, I think that it's not about the length or the width or the. It's about the way that the guy actually performs, as opposed to like length width, fifteen centimeters. Is that what you're talking about? So yeah, I, I don't know. I think if a guy has talent, he will be able to make love to you no matter what. Okay, well, throughout life I look for a girl that is structured in her own little way. Um, I look for a girl that's very sexy, hot. Um, she's extremely beautiful. And she has her own... Well, she can tell me what to do. Physical is really what it's all about because obviously the instantaneous reaction to anyone is the physical reaction. It's not going to be a mental reaction. You could see someone walk into a room and say, oh my God, who the fuck is that guy? But it's not until you actually meet him that you get a mental reaction. So, yeah, it's all about the physical. Spinderella cut it up one time. That was Marquess and Darren Osborne talking about the science of sex. Ladies, listen to me. Now back to your man, then back to me. Listen to your man again, and now listen to me. He isn't me, but he could sound like me. I'm telling you a story about how men's semen works as an antidepressant in women. Look away, look back. Now I'm talking to a guy who wants to cure mind-controlling parasites in crazy cat ladies with gold nanoparticles activated by lasers. Come closer. I'm telling you how high doses of vitamin C have been shown to activate a pathway of desire that makes you go out and seek sex with strangers. I'm Ian Wolf, and today I woke up with a huge, hard, swollen larynx. I'm a little horse. Listen to me on www.hereswhy.tk or follow me on Twitter at Ian Wolf. You're listening to Diffusion Science Radio. Diffusion at 2SCR.com Brought to you across Australia on the Community Radio Network. Into Sydney on 2SER and over the internet on www.diffusionradio.com Subscribe now. Michael Georgiev is a computer scientist and entrepreneur who has worked with intelligent software agent and web-based health. He spoke at the Singularity Summit Australia in Melbourne with Ian Wolfe about building rational artificial intelligences. 
Two things I do. I run a company called Precedence Healthcare, which does uh, focused on web-based chronic disease management. And I'm at Monash University, although I'm an IT person. I'm in the Faculty of Medicine at Monash. And we're talking about rational machines here at the Singularity Summit. And how do rational machines relate to web-based healthcare? It seems a big leap from building rational machines to healthcare. But in chronic disease management, the key element there is that you've got a whole team of people working together and with the patient trying to collaborate. And it's important in making that collaboration effective that everyone knows the intentions of the others, what their beliefs are, what their objectives are. And this comes back to the very notion of, well, what is rationality? Um, How do people or machines use their beliefs, desires, intentions? How can I recognise those in others so I can intervene appropriately and so forth? You were talking about the model of rational machines and therefore, and I guess, rational people interacting, involving belief, desire and intention. So how does that apply? So that's, that's BDI? Yes, it, it's shortened to what they call BDI agents or intelligent BDI agents. The notion is um, when we were trying to design these machines to get round and survive in a real world, uh, a typical program just has a program and a machine executes that. If we were going to build complex, survivable machines that live in an uncertain world where things go wrong, it wasn't going to be possible to program for every possibility. So therefore the the question came up, what sort of things, concepts or ideas do you have to put in a computer? What framework, if you like, do you have to put in a computer so that it can get round in this uncertain world? So there are three core concepts, one of which are the desires, the objectives, if you like, that the computer must have. One of their beliefs about the world, because no matter what their desires were, if they don't have some beliefs about the world, they're not going to be able to sensibly achieve their desires. Uh, And then their intentions are, well, I've got certain desires, I've got certain beliefs, I form an intention about how I get from where I am to where I want to go. Right. And so that they that constitutes the framework. The key element then is how do those things all work together? And the questions that arise, well, once I've made my mind up to do something, to in, once I've got an intention, how strongly do I stick to it? Under all circumstances? Or if my beliefs change, maybe I should change my intention. Or if my goals change, maybe I should change my intention. So... Um, it's that mix of interaction between those things. And we, we had machines that stuck too strongly to their intentions and therefore disregarded beliefs about things that were important. We had other machines that didn't stick strongly enough to their intentions and kept changing their mind all the time and therefore not achieving their objectives. That's a theory of mind. And you're also talking about giving the rational machines a theory of mind so they can interact with other rational agents. Yes, so once we started forming teams of agents, then they needed to have a model in their head of the, the minds of the other agents. So therefore, 
we would have, we use that same model, a BDI model, where each agent would not only have their own beliefs, desires and intentions, but would have a model of the beliefs, desires and intentions of all the other agents they were interacting with. So it's sort of, in some ways, replicating a bit of evolution, that we had to do the same thing as we became social animals. Yes, we've been trying to, I guess, jumpstart that by filling up their heads with initial beliefs and initial plans so they know from the start they get a jump start on how to get around in the world and how to form teams and whatever. But you're right, I mean, if, we, if we're talking about how you move from pure amoebic-like reactive systems to ones that have complex theories about how intentions and beliefs interact, then that's the path that we we ourselves have gone on in trying to understand how to build these machines. And these machines and these agents, can they make plans? Yes, all the time. That's In fact, most of their time they're making plans. Right. And it's usually those plans that form the basis of their intentions, right? They'll make a plan to go to Brisbane or to, or to get to the other side of the room and then they'll, those things will be there, form the basis of their intentions. You're saying something about the rules of rationality being well understood, but not the emotion. Is that minus the emotions? Yeah, that is minus the emotions. The rules of rationality around beliefs, desires, and intentions. I think we've got a good enough idea. I mean, however, we haven't delved sufficiently and don't understand enough about the role that emotions could play. Why do we think they play a role? Because Otherwise, it would be surprising that evolution threw them up. But uh, given that they exist, uh, we really have to understand you know, why. You know, why would why would we have a guilty computer? It seems to me you're saying that looking at rational machines and understanding how to build them gives you an insight into how people can collaborate. And of course, the ultimate question people always want to know with artificial intelligences is. What is the biggest difficulty in getting towards human-level intelligence, assuming you can do that at all? I think the issue of the role of emotions is important in collaborative behaviour. If we're going to get effective collaboration, that has to be understood better. But by far the biggest problem is giving them the rich knowledge that humans have. So we can build in very specific areas very intelligent machines that perform better than computers. So when the work we did on the space shuttle, our BDI agents were recognising problems far better than the mission controllers or the astronauts and solving them. Right. But if we applied them to another domain, they, would be, they did nothing. So it's very much like uh, physical devices. You know, we've got physical devices like tractors and cranes that do things much better than humans in their specific domains. I think with intelligence we have the same thing with BDI agents. In specific domains we can do much better than humans, but trying to apply them in a general common sense world, very hard. Very hard. And I mean you showed us videos of the early robots and some of the later systems. One of the things some of the people interested in the singularity like to talk about is their idea that artificial intelligence is a solution to everything. We just make really smart artificial intelligences and then they can start redesigning themselves and they can get smarter and smarter. 
What do you think of that as someone who's actually working in the field and really understands it? I think we're a long way away from having machines that are creative enough and have enough knowledge about how to create themselves. So it's certainly possible. Again, in limited domains, all our machines can learn new new plans, new ways of going about things. But the ability to better design a machine that's, you know, getting towards the levels of our intelligence is a long way into the future. Not impossible. Not impossible. Thank you very much. Michael Georgiev is a former program director of both the Artificial Intelligence Center at SRI International in California, using reasoning system on the space shuttle, and of the Australian Artificial Intelligence Institute in Melbourne, developing intelligent agent technology. Michael Georgiev is currently director at the eHealth Research Unit of the Monash Institute of Health Service Research, using rational intelligent models to help teams work together to understand each other's beliefs desires and intentions bdi science is fun it helps you to learn to know and to appreciate when you study science you may go on field trips you discover the marvelous interrelationships between all living things you learn to read the history of the earth as it is written in rocks and fossils you find out what makes things tick everything from a molecule to a living organism in the study of sciences found the most useful and satisfying knowledge of man. Knowledge of his physical world, its past, its present, and its future. And in your moments of relaxation, now and in the years to come, you will find the study of science leading you into fascinating pursuits. Photography. Collecting. Why study science? Study science because you will find in the study of science a richer, more rewarding life. I've heard people say that too much of anything is not good for your baby. But I don't know about that. As many times as we've loved and we've shared love and made love, it doesn't seem to me like it's enough. It's just not enough, baby. It's just not enough. And that's all from us in this edition of Diffusion. If you would like to contact us, if you have feedbacks, comments, suggestions, or wild passionate praises, then send email to diffusion at 2SER.com. That's diffusion at 2SER.com. Or subscribe to our podcast on our website, www.diffusionradio.com. That's www.diffusionradio.com. Contributing to the program were Lachlan Watmore, Mark West, Darren Osborne, and Ian Wolfe. Diffusion has been produced and panelled by Ian Wolfe in the studios of 2SER Sydney. Diffusion is broadcast nationally via the Community Radio Network. I'm Bonnie Yu. Join us inside your audio device of choice for more science wandering next week on Diffusion Science Radio. Goodbye and good night. I've heard people say that... Too much of anything is not good for your baby. But I don't know about that as many times as we've loved. And we've shared love and made love. It doesn't seem to me like it's enough. It's just not enough, baby. It's just not enough. 